Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and it's been a big week for workers in Australia. It, uh, the uh, ACTU's uh, campaign to... Uh, Change the rules, the rules are broken, uh, kicked off on Tuesday down at the Melbourne Town Hall with a mass delegates meeting. There were over 1,600 uh, delegates packed into the Town Hall and there were others who had to go and watch it live streaming because uh, there were so many people there to listen to uh, why uh, there needs to be workers on the streets across the nation. It's only the beginning. Uh, all, all across the country there are going to be uh, rallies uh, around this issue. Uh, they're going to be uh, tied to the uh, May Day and Labor Day events that uh, happen traditionally around this time. Uh, they're calling it 12 Days of Action. And uh, it's going to end with a major rally in Melbourne on May the 9th. So everybody should be out on the streets on that day, meeting at uh, the Victorian Trades Hall at 10 o'clock. And this is uh, for union members, but also workers in general, because uh, what's at stake is... uh, is the future of working work in Australia? Uh, there are serious issues around uh, the way workers are being treated. Uh, insecure work, uh, the cutting of penalty rates that uh, comes in on July the first. Uh, there's a whole range of issues that are so important that people who are working in Australia and people who uh, are not need to uh, really focus because basically this is a class war. Uh, Today, uh, one of the issues that we're going to cover is, uh, are the robots coming? (laughs) Uh, There was a very interesting uh, discussion about uh, the fear that uh, many workers feel about the security of their work, not just uh, casualisation, but uh, the fear that uh, is being engendered across society around uh, jobs being lost because... Uh, robots will take your job, mechanisation. Uh, we have a look at that. In fact, this is the first part because the part, uh, the second part I'm going to play next week, which is a continuation on the discussion about why it's such an effective scare campaign to uh, for workers 
to uh, uh, fear their, uh, that robots are coming? Why is it being why is it being promoted so aggressively? Uh, but this week we're going to look at uh, uh, some of the issues around uh, are they coming? Uh, you might be interested to know that uh, Humphrey McQueen will be down on May the eighth at the uh, uh, international the new international bookshop, which is situated in the Trades Hall. Uh, to give a talk on exactly the same subject, but uh, it's really called uh, What Does Marx Say About Robots? <laughs> uh, you can get tickets through Everbright if you're interested in going to that. That's at 7 o'clock down at the New International Bookshop. But uh, today we're going to hear a discussion given at the Marxist conference around uh, these issues uh, Later on, we're going to hear about a, a very interesting film called Kangaroo, about uh, what's happening to kangaroos uh, in Australia. Uh, you might think that uh, Skippy is alive and well, but actually Skippy's a bit under threat. Uh, we're going to follow that with uh, Kevin, and uh, this is the week that was, and we're going to then have some snippets from that delegates meeting. We're going to hear about what the motions were that they put forward, and we're going to hear a few words from some delegates as well as uh, we're going to hear from John Setka from the CFMEU. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. So, uh, as you can see, the first slide that I've got up is from a Guardian article from a couple of months ago. It says, robots are going to take our jobs, uh, we better plan now before it's too late. Uh, the subject is obviously talking about the new Amazon Go store that just opened up in Seattle. Now this is a store that has no checkout staff, it's fully automated, so basically you walk through and an app on your phone pings and pays for whatever you wanted to purchase. Now, according to this article, the opening of the Amazon Go store in Seattle brings us one step closer to the end of work as we know it. Now, this is a pretty regular thing these days. You know, Amazon and Tesla and other companies like that uh, make headlines when they've got their latest technological gimmick. Um, you know, from data collection to drone deliveries to robotics and automation, Companies like Amazon are at the forefront of what has been called the fourth industrial revolution. And rather than being powered by steam or by factories uh, or by railroads, this industrial revolution is meant to be powered by AI, robotics, and computerization. So Amazon, along the sort of the, the mythology out there is that Amazon, along with other companies like Tesla, Facebook, Apple, Uber, and Google, uh, seem to be creating a new tech gilded age. Like the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, and the Vanderbilts of a century ago, each company comes complete with its own billionaire that claims to be able to solve all of humanity's problems uh, through the free market and through their technological wizardry, while they, of course, create mountains of cash for themselves. Now, both pundits on the left and the right assure us that these companies and these corporate titans are uh, pioneers. They're revolutionizing every aspect of our lives. And many, like this article, think that they are revolutionizing work itself, the very basis of capitalism. And it's not just newspapers and tech journalists that say this stuff. There was a seminal academic study done by a couple of academics called Frey and Osborne a few years ago, and every, it gets updated and rehashed every couple of years. 
you may have heard of this, it's been in the news. Uh, in this study uh, in America, they predicted that 47% of employment was at high risk of being automated uh, by computerization or by, by robots or whatever over the next 10 to 20 years. 47% of all jobs potentially being automated. They've uh, tried to, other academics have tried to replicate similar research uh, using the same method in Australia, and they come to similar conclusions, 40 to 45%. Uh, sounds pretty apocalyptic. You know, you're talking about massive social dislocation, layoffs, job turnovers, and the point is, workers, beware. Your lives are going to get worse, it's going to get more automated, uh, and it's going to get more difficult to maintain steady uh, employment. And whatever your skills are now, they're going to be completely obsolete in a few years. Uh, and you know, that's just one survey. I want to talk about that survey later, but really academia is full of this kind of stuff. Uh, so that's the sort of apocalyptic idea scenario of automation and robotics. Uh, the other sort of side of things is what I call the utopian perspective. According to one leftist in Britain, Paul Mason, the digital revolution poses an existential threat to capitalism. He says it will reshape our notions of work, production and value, and destroy an economy based on markets and private ownership. He says that uh, this is already happening. He points to parallel currencies, you know, like Bitcoin, uh, Wikipedia, cooperatives, self-managed online spaces, spaces, and so on, saying that this is capitalism essentially breaking down. So the point is, I want to uh, convince you guys of two major points and answer two important questions. Number one, will half of the working class be automated in the next couple of decades? The answer is no, they will not. Number two, are we really entering a technological revolution on the scale of previous industrial revolutions and so on? The answer is no, we're not. Everybody else who talks about this, or almost everybody else who talks about this, I think is wrong. Over the last 50 years, we have seen widespread implementation of computerization and other technologies. There's usually a couple of arguments uh, that, go, that go into saying that this computerization and this technology is fundamentally disrupting a labor market. One, the new technologies are causing a reduction in the amount of work. And two, that the new technology is causing more rapid job turnover. In other words, workers are forced to leave their jobs more frequently and find new work in new industries and so on. This is a graph showing the hours worked per capita in Australia from 1966 to 2016. As you can see here, uh, labor force participation is not going down. There, were, there have been steep declines in the past around the GFC, but it has been rising steadily as far as the overall work uh, and the hypothetical participation, the participation if there are 40-hour weeks, that has been relatively stable and, and slowly increasing over the last 20 to 30 years. Now, the reason why I wanted to show you those things is because if there is any sign that technologies have led to a decrease in the amount of work in countries like Australia, it isn't here. And the fact is, it hasn't led to a decrease in the amount of available work. What has happened is there's been a restructuring of the labor market. And that restructuring has seen a decline in the amount of manual blue-collar jobs, uh, especially things like agriculture, but also other you know, manual factory jobs, uh, white-collar clerical work, things like that has been declining. Repetitive manual labor has been declining. But we've also seen an, in, an increase in what they call abstract labor. So that can be, uh, uh, you know, more uh, university professors or whatever, but also uh, software engineers, uh, managerial classes, 
salespeople, finance, and these sorts of things. Now there's two reasons why I wanted to show you this, this chart. On the one hand, it shows that there has been a decline in manual labor, uh, but those jobs have been filled by other sections of the economy which have been expanding, or the other, other sections of the labor pool which have been expanding. The other reason why I wanted to show you this is because this, the beginning of this chart is 1966. So this restructuring has been taking place, again, since decades before uh, anybody was using computers or the internet even existed. So the point is that these are parts of long-term restructuring that have been happening in the Australian labor market that, that, are, uh, pretty, that have nothing to do with the implementation of new technology, or at least computers in, in the digital era. You can even see here, in 2001, manual labor actually begins to stabilize. And the decline in manual labor actually stopped in roughly 2001. So all through the explosion of the internet, the dot-com crash, all that kind of stuff, manual labor has actually been relatively stable. Finally, this is a chart showing the job tenure. Again, this is showing that the relative length of time people stay in their current occupations <laughs> has not really changed that much. There have been slight changes, but not massive changes. So no sign that job turnover is increasing, that people are being sacked at a higher rate, that they're being forced to look for, more work, for, for different kinds of jobs, and so on. Really, you can apply a variety of measures to look at the changing uh, structure of the Australian and the American and European economies over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And all of them tell a very similar story. One, there is no evidence that an increased use of computer-based technologies has been associated with a higher rate of job destruction or a faster pace of structural change. Two, new technology can destroy old jobs, um, but it also creates new ones. And three, the declining uh, numerical rate of manual labors and the other changing structural components of the economy has been going on since long before the tech boom, the internet age, and so on. Now, I want to quickly move on to uh, talk quickly about that Frey and Osborne study, the study from the US. Because the reality is we can sit here and say that so far, Computerization hasn't had an effect on, a, on the job market, but maybe it will in the future. That doesn't necessarily mean people's predictions are wrong. But there's a few things that people should know about this study that he's used, and I think we can extrapolate that out a bit, a bit more in a second. First of all, everything uh, that, his, all of his conclusions are predicated on the idea that he has an accurate prediction of which jobs are going to be automated going into the future. For example, some of the jobs that Frey and Osborne think will be automated seem pretty far-fetched. So things like surveyors, accountants, tax and revenue agents, and market specialists. And in Australia, all of these jobs have seen pretty strong growth in the last five, six years. I think another example of that is that the authors claim that finger dexterity is an impediment to automation, which I'd argue is true. Uh, and then he says that watch repairers have a 98% chance of being automated. So there seems to be very little method or very little logic in, in what he decides is a job that will or won't be automated. Another criticism about the way the, the method that they use is they argue that computer if there is an industry, if there is a job that might be automated, everything in that industry or everything in that job will be automated. So for example, driverless vehicles mean that automatically tax drivers, bus drivers, chauffeurs, couriers, etc., they're all going to be automated. That's where he gets up to this 47% mark. 
In reality, what's much more likely is that automation will be used in specific jobs or occupations or industries to automate some tasks, but that doesn't mean that all of the tasks are going to then be gone. Third, even for those tasks which are technologically feasible to automate, it still has to be profitable for companies to actually implement it. Uh, that is, just because the technology to do something may exist in a lab somewhere, it doesn't mean it's going to be profitable to roll it out on a mass basis across an entire industry. There's a shitload of other limitations. You know, the availability of, of, of workers that are skilled in that industry to be able to do it. Um, also, automated can be halted by government intervention. You know, we just seen uh, Uber kill its first person in the U.S. Uh, when their automated car ran over a woman in Arizona. They've already come up against a whole series of legislative hurdles. Uh, it's clear that the state is very nervous about having driverless cars you know, driving around everywhere. Uh, it's not clear that Uber has just got free reign now to automate every car uh, in existence. The point is that Frey and Osborne completely ignore all these factors. And when we just account for one of them, so when we just account for the factor of saying that all jobs will be eliminated in an industry, rather than saying only specific tasks will be automated, uh, there's been uh, other critics of Frey and Osborne who have done studies which basically try to use interviews with workers to determine from them what their actual job requires and what tasks they do to then come to, to conclusions about what might be automated. And according to those uh, studies, roughly 9% of jobs of in, in America could be automated in the next 20, 10 to 20 years. That's dealing with one criticism. So, Again, when we begin to take all these criticisms into account, the idea that everything under the sun is going to be automated, or the idea that we can even accurately predict what will and won't be automated in 20 or 30 years, I think, uh, begins to fall apart. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and we're looking at the uh, vexed issue of robots. Are robots coming for people's jobs? Uh, it's a discussion that was had at Marxism 2018, and uh, uh, we'll, go, we'll go on and hear the rest of this part of the talk uh, because it's actually quite fascinating to me anyway. A few years ago, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the US, which is called DARPA, uh, it's a Pentagon research arm. Uh, it held a robotics competition in California. There was a $2 million uh, prize for any robot that performed the best in a series of sort of rescue-oriented uh, exercises. The robots had an hour to complete a set of eight tasks that would probably take a human less than 10 minutes. Uh, this is the account of a reporter who was there. The robots, which were protected from falling by tethers, were glacially slow in accomplishing tasks such as opening doors and entering room, clearing debris, climbing ladders, and driving through an obstacle course. They often failed completely. <laughs> they had to be placed in the vehicles by human minders, and most of the robots were two-legged, but many had four legs or wheels or both. But none were autonomous. Human operators, human operators guided the machines via wireless networks, and they were largely helpless without human supervisors. Some of the reporters compared watching the, uh, the competition to watching paint dry and watching grass grow. <laughs> The point is, despite all the hot air about the leaps, you know, I saw a YouTube video of a robot opening a door and everybody's like, oh my God, the robot apocalypse is coming. And it's like, it takes it like a minute and a half to open the door. It's pretty scary stuff. The reality is that very little headway has been made in, in cognition uh, or the higher level human-like processes that are required for real autonomy or things like fine motor skills. Algorithms can vote on whether to invest or not in a hedge fund 
but a robot can't even hit a tennis ball, let alone beat a club, a club player. Taking all this into, the, into account, the idea, again, that we're on the cusp of this robotics revolution and is going to completely knock us all out of a job and we're all going to be subservient to our robot overlords, I think is, is pretty far-fetched. Again, robotics can be implemented in specific tasks. Automation can be even implemented in specific inter industries, for example, the docks to try to, to break the MUA, or it has been implemented in like grocery store checkouts, which is fewer and fewer, and it's the worst. Uh, but again, the idea that we are facing 40, 45, 50% automation by robots that you know can barely even wipe their own asses, I find to be a bit. Sure we don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, they don't need bathroom breaks. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, which is 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick classic, that came out in 1968. And Stanley Kubrick thought that it was pretty, uh, you know, the people pretty believable that in 2001, so 17 years ago, we'd have commercial flights to the moon, you know, we'd be flying through wormholes in Jupiter, we'd have spaceships with like evil AI computers. Um, that was in 1968. And even as late as the 70s and 80s, you could regularly see National Geographic articles that talked about the inevitable, that we're about to have space stations everywhere, that we're going to take expeditions to Mars, and so on. And keep in mind, you know, no wonder people had high expectations. You're talking about the 60s and 70s. It was the height of the space race. Uh, you know, it was the end of the greatest expansion that capitalism had ever known up until that time, the post-war boom. And when you think about it, people had just come through whole generations of absolutely life-altering technological advances. You know, you think about it, if you were an 80-year-old who died in 1970, over your lifetime, you would have seen, uh, if not the invention, then the mass implementation and the mass availability of things like electric lights, railways, motor cars, canned food, frozen food, washing machines, radios, refrigerators, telephones, film and television, commercial airplanes, the regular post. You know, these aren't just like little twerks around the edges. These things really fundamentally altered people's lives and revolutionized them. Now, you might be able to put like the internet of smartphones sort of up there in the pantheon of, of absolutely groundbreaking inventions. But really, over the last 50 years, there's been remarkably little else. And I think rather than us talking about Again, I'm going out on a limb here. I would actually argue that technological advance, as far as breakthroughs that fundamentally change our lives, has slowed down quite a bit. It's like, where's our flying cars and robot maids and the rest? <laughs> I think the point is, even if you don't believe that, the point is that capitalism has always brought about revolutionary change in consumption, in production, and so on. And in the last 50 years, hasn't even, if you could see even accelerating at all, which I don't actually think it has, if anything, it's probably slowed down. I do want to throw one thing into the equation as both evidence and cause of what I would think is to be slower technological development over the last 50 years. This is a chart showing uh, the net fixed investments by private sector. So this is investment in infrastructure and research and development uh, and intellectual property, uh, another key part of, of of uh, technological development. And what you can see is, over the last, from 1950 to 2010, we have seen a slow and steady decline. In 1950, it was at roughly 3.8%. Today, it's about 2.1%, about half. I would argue, again, I'm no economist, but it seems unlikely that you can have a, 
technological or industrial revolution with such a declining low level of capital investment? Now you might say, sure, that's the level of capital investment as a whole, but what about in technology more specifically? Well, this is investment in information processing equipment software as a percentage of GDP. GDP. Over the years, we have seen a rise that then peaked in the late 90s with the tech boom and then fell off the cliff afterwards. It's actually been steadily declining ever since. Why am I saying this? Well, I'm saying this because this is a sign, and this is an, 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 an you know, this gives us an idea of the amount of society's resources is being pumped into researching and developing and implementing new technologies. And as we can see, that level of investment has actually been declining over the decades. Again, it's very difficult. When you compare that to the levels of investment during the actual Industrial Revolution, like in Britain in the mid-1800s, of 12, 15, even some years up to 20% of society's resources were being shoveled back into building factories and roads and, uh, and, and everything else that goes towards making an Industrial Revolution. I want to quickly deal with Paul Mason's arguments, the guy before who said that we're approaching a digital utopia. Uh, and let's pretend like we are on the verge of some digital revolution that's about to change everything. Paul Mason is a leftist, uh, and he can be quite interesting sometimes, but I think on this issue, uh, it's clear that he has not read or he has forgotten his Marx. One of the core tenets of Marxism uh, is called the falling rate of profit, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. What this effectively means is that all profits under capitalism are created by human labor. So all of the money flying around in the stock market, all the skyscrapers, all the factories, all the billionaire investment portfolios, all ultimately, its original source is human labor. Now the problem for capitalism is that the more skyscrapers and factories and billionaire portfolios you have, effectively, the more expensive it becomes to exploit human labor. This tends to mean that the rate of profit falls over time. The more that capital piles up on itself, the more it gets in the way of the future accumulation of capital. And this same thing goes for AI and robots and other labor-saving machineries and, and everything else. For society as, as a whole, the more capital accumulates, the lower the rate of profit. The outcome of this is not utopias of you know, horizontal decision-making and Wikipedias and so on. It's actually crisis, economic crisis, social crisis, political crisis, wars. As the rate of profit falls, the market's Stock markets and other markets become less stable, depressions are deeper and they last longer, and they have potential to drive wider and wider sections uh, into a crisis and chaos. That's exactly what we saw during the GFC. And I think that a lot of this is borne out, you know, there's, there's that element, the economic crisis, but then there's also war, and that's borne out by this point. Something like 95% of high-tech investment over the last 50 years has not come from Silicon Valley and Steve Jobs. Uh, it's gone into the defense industries. Overwhelmed, the vast majority of it, even if you look at things like the iPhone, pretty much all the tech, all the important tech in the iPhone came from the military. Was, you know, whether it's touch screens or the internet or uh, you know, satellite navigation, all this stuff came from, from military research. And you know, they're not building robot maids for us in the, in the military, they're building drones and surveillance technology and other weapons that can more effectively kill people. So in other words, what we see under capitalism with more and more investment in technology is more tendency towards crisis, towards instability, 
and towards war. And that tech isn't going to be used to better people's lives uh, or to solve humanity's issues. It's going to be used to more effectively kill people. Now, that was a discussion that was held at the uh, Marxist 2018. And uh, this isn't a consolation for uh, anybody who's lost their job because of the introduction of mechanisation. I got a call. Uh, thank you to the caller who rang in and said that uh, his work in factories as uh, in the metal trades was completely white-anted by the introduction of uh, uh automation. Uh, so obviously the discussion is broader than just this, but it, it does throw some interesting points into the pot about, uh, gives a broader view of uh, the way the system's operating. Uh, it doesn't actually deal with the uh, fears of individuals and uh, people who have actually lost their work. But over the uh, period of capitalism, people have continually lost their jobs because of the introduction of uh, mechanisation and machines. I think it's a fascinating conversation. As I said, uh, Humphrey McQueen is going to be in town on May the 8th at the uh, international new international bookshop, which is in uh, Victorian Trades Hall. That's on the corner of uh, Victoria and Ligon Street in Carlton. Uh, it's at seven. You can get tickets at Everbright. He, his conversation is also going to be about robotics, but uh, robots and what Marx has to say about it. Uh, next week, I'll pay the last bit of this discussion, which was around why is it so important to raise people's fears uh, generally around the idea of losing their jobs. Uh, uh, this is a creation that obviously the boss class wants in people's minds, that this is the future world for uh, for all of us. But uh, anyway, uh, I thought it was uh, bring, worth bringing to your attention and hopefully it uh, raises some discussion. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Let's go to some important messages. Located in the heart of Thornbury, the Islamic Museum of Australia showcases the cultural and artistic heritage of Australian Muslims. Don't miss our latest youth-based exhibition, Ways to be Muslim, and immerse yourself in a series of photographic portraits and unique personal narratives. This exhibition is hosted in partnership with Muslim Collective and the Victorian State Government and is showing until July 8th. Visit the museum website for more information. Islamic Museum of Australia is a 3CR supporter. Ali MC presents a brand new photography exhibition, Shot on the Road, an intimate yet confronting view of the forgotten parts of the world. Shot on the Road will be opening on Saturday, May 5 at the Fitzroy Library from 2 to 4pm. Shot on the Road is part of the 2018 Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and is supported by the City of Yarra, Prism Imaging and Brio Books. A 3CR supporter. It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night. It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city. So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there. Come along and have some fun.
Yes, it is Radiothon time again. It's coming up. No, it's a couple of months away, but uh, obviously some of the shows on 3CR are hot to trot. They're reminding their uh, listeners that uh, the station needs to... uh, Raised $250,000 this year to keep on the air and the slogan for the station this year is Fight for Your Mic. And uh, I guess that uh, I guess this uh, program hopes that uh, if you're listening uh, that uh, you might want to uh, share some love uh, to ensure that uh, this program continues in its present form or in a perhaps a more developed form. Last week we got a... a a report from a potential new member of the team. Uh, It's a great thing to have a team rather than a solo act, uh, as we all know, and was reiterated on Tuesday when uh, there was the Mass Delegates meeting, uh, which later on we'll have a report about on this program. But um, now we're going to have a little uh, uh, listen to a chat I had with a filmmaker called Kate McIntyre-Clear, They've, uh, she and uh, her partner have made a documentary about uh, the kangaroo and uh, it's uh, particularly fascinating because uh, they began this process not uh, because they were uh, particularly interested in the welfare of kangaroos. They are uh, professional uh, documentary filmmakers and uh, what they... Uh, found uh, shocked them to bits and I must say the film is quite uh, an eye-opener but anyway let's have a listen we're talking about your film kangaroo can you tell me how yes, how yes. it came about that you were making this film well we thought it was a great idea to make a film about Australia's national icon we thought that would just be an interesting you know concept everybody's interested in it everyone's got an opinion everyone's connected to it and it's one of the most recognisable symbols in the world. So we just jumped on and thought, let's make a film that really, you know, unpacks this cultural, social, environmental story. And, uh, yeah, we obviously found lots of things out along the way that made for a fairly interesting, controversial story across Australia. That's interesting. Uh, so you, you didn't start off uh, knowing any of these rather unseemly things that you uncovered. <laughs> Well, I think everyone knows that, you know, they are talked about as being a pest in Australia. But, I mean, you just hear that, you know, every Australian hears different stories. So, you know, just as citizens, we kind of heard those tales. But we didn't really know, like, the full catastrophe, I guess, that was happening. And, you know, we certainly hadn't heard it was the largest wildlife massacre in the world. And, you know, all those bits and pieces that are in the film were, you know, definitely news to us. Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, I, I used to live in the bush, so I uh, got a, quite a different feel about kangaroos. So I was really uh, moved by your film, I'll have to say. Um, that that notion that, uh, that's that being uh, pushed, that uh, kangaroos are a pest, therefore we should be able to make uh, it, it turn that around and make them into an industry. Isn't that a good thing? Uh, and then the things that you discover through the political work of uh, the animal rights groups. Yeah, look at, you know, so there's so many different parts to the story, really, that, you know, we unfolded. I mean, I think most Australians don't know most of the stories. You know, they don't know that uh, it's gone from just farmers being interested in removing the animals from their land to a fully, you know, growing, expanding export industry. 
Um, I think most people don't know that, you know, they're taken in the wild at night, that they're not farmed, that they're carried on the back of trucks in the open air with their guts all open across the, you know, dust for many hours before they're refrigerated. And I definitely think most people don't know about the cruelty associated with the joey. So, yeah, look, we uncovered lots of stories that we thought were interesting and we thought other people should know. So, yeah, it was a very, um, you know, it was... It was shocking for us, and you know we think it will probably be shocking for for the audience. You know, I was interested in the range of people that you were actually uh, went to speak to. Like uh, you were able to get evidences from Roo shooters themselves, which was quite fascinating. Yes, no, it was great. I mean, as you sort of do these documentaries, you know, people do come forward and hear your story, and word of mouth gets out. So, yeah, shooters rang us, and we went and met different people in their places, and went out uh, with them. And so, look, you know, first-hand story is obviously very different than uh, what perhaps people want to happen or say is happening. So, you know, I think that's a really new and interesting and kind of crucial part of the film, that people really get to know what is happening out there in the bush. And, I mean, I'm sure there's a different story from every part, but, you know, there's still stories coming out today. We had a screening in Brisbane last night and one of the roost shooters came to the screening, uh, screening and was reporting sort of like mass shootings up in Queensland happening. So, you know, even in the film, there's not every... We didn't tell every story. And, you know, obviously we finished the film about a year ago and new stories keep coming through. It's quite fascinating because you actually go to quite a... a uh, to lengths to uh, put it into a scientific... Uh, context as well as a business as well as a political context uh, th- that's really good hard work that you've done to get a rounded picture of what's going on yeah look I think we thought that was important because it's a cultural icon national icon we knew that everyone would be involved here or there you know and everyone would have an opinion so you know it was interesting for us to talk to scientists that work for the industry scientists that are looking at more conservation aspects, politicians both for and against the killing of kangaroos, farmers, wildlife carers, you know, I mean, and even like just people in society in general, tourists and um, international people that are dealing with kangaroo products or kangaroo exports. And so there was, we did feel, I guess, a responsibility to really tell a broad story. And that was our initial inspiration for the film was to really get a sense of how the kangaroo sat in the Australian culture. So you're actually uh, documentary filmmakers as, and you've made other documentary films, obviously. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, that's how you make a living, effectively, and, and you just fell upon this story. Uh, yes, we were, I mean, we're always looking for stories. That's what you do, I think, as documentary filmmakers. And uh, we're actually at the Cannes film market and people were saying, oh, are there any other Australian stories coming out of Australia? You know, what what do you know? What's happening? Are you guys, what, do you, what are you making next? And, and I, you know, part of the film was initiated from that conversation that we had with sales agents across the world. And we thought, boy, no one's done... We were surprised, actually, that no one before us had really made such a broad look at the kangaroo. And uh, it's the third most recognisable icon in the world outside the Statue of Liberty and the Eiffel Tower. So, you know, everybody in the world has some connection or interest in the kangaroo. And, in fact, it's 
one of the top three things people want to see when they come to the country. You know, I, I, you know, I think for everyone listening, wherever they travel, you know, overseas people are always like, oh, what are kangaroos like? Have you? And I've seen a kangaroo. That's such a conversation that everyone has. So we knew that it would kind of generate an interest from not only within Australia but an international audience. It's, it turns out to be a pivotal uh way of telling a very broad story about Australian culture per se and environment, didn't it? It really does sort of look into the crannies of corruption as well as uh, um, lack of uh, imagination on the parts of people in regards to the country they're actually living in. Yeah, well, look, I think there's a fairly sort of Oh, I mean, I think people haven't taken much of an interest. I mean, when we have finished the film, we found that really civil society has let the kangaroo down. Yeah. There's not been enough inquiry from the general public, let alone scientists and politicians, really looking into all the facts, all the myths that are created around kangaroos. I think we've allowed ourselves to believe, I guess, uh, some industry... Um, conversations around kangaroos. I think we've allowed ourselves to consider them pests and haven't really, what we found in the film is, you know, there's very little money or political will into looking at coexistence with the wildlife in Australia. And, you know, I think that's come from, you know, historical right up until today, from white settlement right up until today. I think we've kind of shaped our story around getting rid of wildlife if they're inconvenient for us. And, you know, a lot of the scientists and people in the film we talk to feel like it's, you know, really time for that to change, that that's uh, not something that we need to be doing in the 21st century, you know, moving forward, what what is it that we want to be doing? We want to be a bit more grown up. There's a couple of uh, real heroes in this film. I'd have to say the couple who live in the Blue Mountains, uh, the work that they've done is just incredible, as well as the uh, an animal rights uh, politician in the New South Wales Parliament. Very intelligent approach, very consistent people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they do have committed for a long time to try and get the word out about what's going on, and, you know, pretty much it's fallen on deaf ears, and I think that's what we've found in the film, that a lot of voices in Australia haven't been heard around kangaroos, and when we started to edit the film and put everyone's voices together, we realised that this was very new. Lots of people didn't know this. I think the press has kind of uh, put forward a lot of interest in the farmers and the kangaroo industry with very little with very little put forward about that we could find while we were researching the film about people living on the ground, wildlife carers, what's happening, ex-shooters, and, you know, there's, there's such a variety of voices in Australia. I think, you know, now as the film hopefully has catapulted us forward into having a much more robust and transparent discussion about this. As you said, there's a lot of intelligent people out there wanting their voices heard. Let's stop and listen. You know, surely we're mature enough to do that now. Uh, have you shown it in any places overseas? Or where, what, what's general reactions to the film? Uh, yeah, we opened the film in the States. We, got a, we were thrilled to get an American distribution deal for the film, which is quite rare still for an Australian doco and uh, we opened in January the 19th in New York City and we're just amazed at the response over there. We got amazing reviews from the New York Times, the LA Times, Variety, all that sort of major press 
over there very interested in the film, comparing it to things like Blackfish and The Cove, and just just kind of amazed. I think Americans in general were really amazed what was going on in Australia. They had no idea. They thought it was like the bald eagle, where it would be a sort of precious national icon. It's a wildlife, you know. So, look, generally from the public's point of view and from the press point of view, they were very interested. And um, in, we haven't been to Europe yet with the film, except the um, some members of the European Parliament requested a screening recently, and um, they showed the film to some people in Parliament who are very interested in the hygiene aspects of the kangaroo meat export. And I think in general just interested in cruelty, the sustainability and all the things about... I mean, we're exporting our wildlife. These aren't farmed creatures. So, you know, I think everyone takes quite a big interest in that. Like California has uh, a ban on importing wildlife. They don't see it sustainable or something that they want to pass. So, you know, uh, it's been... Yeah, it's very interesting for overseas. They, they, of course, have a different opinion than what we've all grown up with. So, yeah, they come at it with different eyes. What about Australia? Have you had you've had some? I mean, I saw it and I I found it really quite harrowing. Actually, uh, I I wasn't displeased that I watched it. To tell you the truth, I, I don't mean that. I mean, having uh, developed a sort of a conceptual connection to can, kangaroos from having lived in the bush, I found it really harrowing. <laughs> so what did other people right. have people said I mean I, I'm not surprised at what you've found I just was so impressed with how uh, well you've put that all together oh thank you yeah look um, uh, in Australia you know we've had a lot of press uh, initially there was a lot of uh, anger and um, people saying the film's biased and it's shocking controversial and all these ways and in some ways the film is quite controversial like so, look, I think people have, that have come to see the film have been, you know, like you, they've been very sort of surprised or uh, riveted as to find out a much fuller story about what's going on with the kangaroos. We've definitely had some great audiences, really strong reviews uh, from reviewers, David Stratton gave it four stars, things like that. And people who have come to the screening, literally the entire screening uh, has stayed to hear the Q&A afterwards. I think people really want to lo- know more. I think this is definitely the beginning of the conversation. We don't feel like we came up with all the answers at all, but we do feel like we came up with a provocative uh, opening for this conversation to happen. So I think it's, you know, I think it's a really important film for all Australians, different ages, to see, just to have a viewpoint. We've had a few uh, reviews from young people, and they're just shocked, like they've, this discussion really hasn't happened in their lifetime around kangaroos at all. So they're just like, what's going on? How come this has been left to, you know, run all these years? So, yeah, look, I think young and, you know, across the board, people are interested and a little bit shocked as to their own kind of not looking at this issue before and that they're just rather left it alone and, you know, let this happen. Mm. Uh, Thanks for spending some time talking to me. Yeah, very interesting film. Oh, thanks a lot, Annie. That's great. Hi, I'm Aaron Patterson, and you're listening to 3CR. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Kevin live on the line. How are you, Kevin? All right, Annie. Well, just to prove it, I, there should be a new film, Jane Fonda, in They Shoot Kangaroos, Don't They? Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, it's yeah, awful. Yeah, following that. Yeah. yeah, it sounds bloody terrible. But look, on a serious note, I'm at the end, and I, I'm 
no no apology for this, but it had to happen. I've got to be highly critical of you at the end of the show today, this today, but you'll pick it up. Okay, um, that's all right. And also, did I hear you say you had John Setka coming on? Yeah, yeah, that's right. He did a speech. Well, even... again, uh, again, that's part of the criticism because I don't know. The Herald Sun would point out that this man is so bad. I mean, you, you've no <laughs> idea. And you'll pick it up at the end. But I, I'm sorry, I had to do this, but I had to do it. Okay, a weak solidarity, Bricky team listener. When we commented last week, our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie, bash up the workers had moved to throw the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world good guy train killers out of True Blue Aussie and close facilities like Pine Gap when she declared True Blue Aussie opposed any country establishing train killer bases in the Asia-Pacific region. Well, this week, the socialist would-be minister for going overseas, etc., Penny Wrong, said she agrees with Julie, throw the U.S. of out. And with her background, she must know how evil capitalist China is, and she says keep China out as well. Just when we face terrifying real threats of chemical warfare from evil Russia and evil China and evil Syria, the evil government, not the good, good Syrians we support, forcing US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor to fight for peace with support from Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and France. And big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull said Troubler was he would join the good guys bombing the proverbial out of if only they would ask us. Because Syria poses an obvious threat to peace in Troubler was he and the US of would know who had chemical weapons because its merchants of death have the receipts. Similar to mission accomplished in then evil Iraq 15 years ago with just a little bit of mopping up ever since. That mission accomplished being getting rid of the weapons of mass destruction and nuclear warheads the US of equally unequivocally knew were there and prevented evil Iraq invading the whole good guy's world. Because they too asked the obvious question, where's all that stuff? We sold them. And this mission accomplished was Donald saying, mission accomplished, good, good. Although no one had the slightest idea what he meant, but that's normal. And the latest version of the Coalition of the Killing said the next step after bombing evil Syria for dropping chemical weapons was for the international authority to investigate whether they had dropped chemical weapons or if chemical weapons had been dropped, whether evil Syria had dropped them. Because the US of and Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and France and True Blue Aussie for that matter hate war crimes. And while on train killers, Troubler was, he announced a new big train killer, Angus Dumbbell, appointed despite Malcolm saying it needed a person of intelligence. Angus, fondly remembered as the train killer agent of former Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, and then Minister for Concentration Camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, scuttle them more or less, sons, sink the boats policy, who answered every question with, I can't answer that question a mine of information, using security reasons as an excuse for the possibility that he didn't have a clue. Although it assumed desperate refugees forced to take to the high seas posed a security threat to Troublewazi. War alert, national security, secrecy, posed a, a security threat, presumably using their fragile boats as weapons by ramming them into the coastline. One of the train killer experts they drag up on these occasions said Angus had a great sense of humour, so he'd appreciate this very funny joke. 
very, very, very funny joke circulating among executives at the big banks and financial institutions. Uh, here's confirmation that this client whom we charged our usual fees for being a client has died. No problems. The coffin might go down, but she'll keep, <laughs> wait for it, coffin up. <laughs> the executives fell about at this brilliant display of wit. They immediately extracted the dying fee and then the being a client daily fee, and then some lackey asked what services they had provided for the massive fees extracted by the day, leading the executives to fall about again at such naivety. Down at the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Con Mission, an executive explained how all this worked. Look, these clients might be dead, but their files are still alive, still open, and they can't expect us to bear the cost of keeping their files open. And on the question of no service being provided for the ridiculously exorbitant fees we charge, if they want service on top of the service we don't provide, then they have to be prepared to pay for that service. Uh, but they do, counsel assisting suggested. I put to you that they do. No, no, what they pay is not for that service, and obviously those fees are not unreasonable when we consider the work involved in convincing clients they are receiving a service for the ridiculously exorbitant fees I mentioned. Uh, by the way, on your way out, don't forget to hand my colleague at the door owl appearing at the Royal Commission fee. And while I have this prestigious audience, may I remind all true blue Aussies of the desperate need for tax reform in this country, for our tax burden to be slashed so we can do even more good for all of us. The minister for something to do with all this, uh, Kelly O'Dwyer, workers so evil, still wearing severe bruises on her knees and bandages on her elbows from being dragged kicking and to the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission, explained how the commission she was dragged kicking and to was all her idea and showed how responsible the government is and how irresponsible are the socialists for who knows what, but presumably for just being the socialists or perhaps for joining the gang who dragged a kicking hand. After all, the big economic guru scuttled them more or less, son, said a Her Most Gracious Majesty's con mission was a socialist plot, totally unnecessary. And the revelations emerging show why it was totally unnecessary to put these good Trublewazi citizens through all this, he moaned. But back to the point about the socialism, given a number of Hayseed and Chipsheet Party members helped form the gang, that may be true, for they are firm believers in socialising their losses. Uh, but Kerry, you and Malcolm and Scuttle them and the team fought tooth and nail to prevent a Royal Commission. I do not wish to comment on the Royal Commission or preempt its findings, other than to say events have validated my decision to establish it and show how clever I am. Uh, which is how you got those bruises and bandages? I just told you, I do not wish to comment on the Royal Commission or preempt its findings, other than to say events have validated my decision to establish it and show how brilliant I am. Although, might I add, this is a sad indictment on the socialists. Still, the government is toying with increasing penalties for all this ripping off, pouring out of the commission, as well as getting tough on, as the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin headlined yesterday, Dole cheats ripping us off.
So a good time to lay the odds on the getting tough steak. <laughs> Who's certain to land in a prison cell first? A big bank, big financial corporate executive or a doll recipient overpaid and ripping us off? And we can but imagine how Lord Rupert would be so upset that anybody could rip people off. Oh, the odds. Corporate executive landing behind bars, 5,000 to 1 and blowing in the market. Doll recipient, long, long odds on. Back in our mother country, the US of, this week Donald threatened to fire former FBI supremo James Combing the Ashes until an aide reminded him he already had sacked him after Combing the Ashes made a number of nasty allegations while flogging his book, including suggesting poor Donald was morally unfit to be big supremo. Morally unfit, Donald? Come on. Indeed, in fairness to Donald, we must disagree with that because we've had a look at the list of his predecessors. And anyway, can't think of one depravity that would constitute being morally unfit for office as USR Big Supremo. A well, correction, other than declaring capitalism illegal and establishing a socialist state devoted to the people and not the corporations, but there's not a big chance of Donald heading in that direction. Yet we must admire his constrained and rational response to combing the ashes' envious attacks. Arguing logically by twit, his attacker was one, a slime bag, two, slippery, three, should be put in jail, four, the worst FBI director in history by far. Why would anyone attack such a reasonable, logical and consistent man? Came in the ashes must have declined rapidly because when he released the email questions about Hillary during the election, Donald said he was the best FBI director by far. A good man. Good, good. Finally, when I came came in earlier, I hate to be critical of you, Annie, but you leave me no choice to coin a cliché. Earlier on Stick Together, you claimed workers are being attacked through casualisation, no right to strike, forced unpaid internships, the list went on. And with Construction Union Secretary John Secker on this morning to reinforce this simplicity, why he has called for a Socialist Party government to restore the rights of workers. If you walk off the job, you're a criminal, he said. If they say by me withdrawing my labour, I can go to jail... That makes me a slave. What rubbish. These people claim to be Marxists. Well, face the reality. Cop your own beliefs. Workers are wage slaves. Workers have no rights. So what have they got to lose? Some nonsense about chains, but who would we believe? A union official, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, constantly informs us he's evil and undertakes illegal activities like fighting for his members, or that centre of refinement and proper society, great law firm Free Kills the Workers, architect of work choices, and don't forget former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Macalia Costa Workers, was a partner at Free Kills. Well, this week, this great bastion of respectability was forced to go public, demanding on behalf of its caring clientele a wage freeze in negotiations this year and the removal of inflexible work practices, presumably crippling conditions like lunch breaks and going home nights and wages and weekends off. It also acknowledged another problem, slow wage growth. Ah, Yes, what's the solution to slow wage growth? Obviously, a wage freeze will lead to higher wages and generate employment. Legal logic, free kill style. 
So who should workers trust? It's obvious. A respectable, great, neutral legal firm or a biased, evil, evil union official. It's a no race. Good morning. 45 Downstairs and future leaders are inviting submissions from emerging Australian visual artists for the Emerging Artist Award 2018. From cutting-edge artistic practices to new takes on traditional styles, selected works will be exhibited at 45 Downstairs Gallery in June. A special guest judge will award prize money to the two artworks that best demonstrate originality and innovation. Submissions close on Monday the 21st of May. For more information, visit 45downstairs.com. A 3CR supporter. Come and see Bart Willoughby's album, Resonance, live on June the 2nd at Fitzroy Town Hall. Doors open at 7pm and show starts at 7.30. Featuring all tracks from Bart Willoughby's latest album, Resonance, a combination of reggae, jazz, opera and Middle Eastern music in celebration of Reconciliation Week. Saturday, June the 2nd, Tickets available through tickyboo.com.au. Early bird community tickets available for 3CR subscribers and City of Yarra residents and workers until May 7th. Check out our Facebook page or website for further details. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and thank you, Kevin. I can take it. I'm tough. Uh, we're going to take you to that mass delegates meeting. I've got a bit of a report for you. It's in two parts. One of them is about, because there were two motions, and you may not know that the mass delegates meeting was to uh, discuss that the uh, rules need changing, they're broken, and Sally McManus did a speech. There was a a very moving speech from... uh, one of the delegates who have been on the grass for over 300 days down at Esso, Longford, where the uh, workers were uh, told uh, last year in June that uh, they'll all be fired and then they could get their jobs back. This is skilled workers we're talking about, you know, AMWU members, ETU members. These are all skilled workers. Uh, were told that they could get their jobs back, but at forty percent less, and uh, with uh, our, um, fly fly in fly, fly out, see they go and work on. They keep those rigs off offshore rigs going. Uh, that they uh, should uh, expect that uh, their um, rosters could be continuous up to fifty two days in a row, and that when they're on the rigs and when they're not needed, then they're not actually being paid. <laughs> so they, being uh, skilled workers and uh, com- and actually completely furious, they've decided to set up picket outside uh, Longford, and you can go down there and uh, talk with them. But uh, they'll and in fact, if you're uh, a union member or work at your workplace, they'll come up and talk to people about what's going on and why it's important for people to get behind the uh, rules need to change. Uh, 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 campaign that's uh, that's um, begun. Uh, 
Troy spoke at the delegates meeting, and uh, if you tune in to uh, stick together for next week, you will probably hear that speech, which caused uh, uh, brought tears to some people's eyes because it was pretty pretty um, scarifying, really. Uh, but what we've got is uh, to. Uh, give you some idea of what was going on on that day, last Tuesday. Uh, the first motion, uh, first up, and then some of the delegates who spoke to that motion. Union delegates support the national campaign to change the rules and commit to taking the campaign to our workplaces and communities. That's been moved by Troy Gray from the ETU and seconded by Meredith Peace. Let me just say how proud I am to be here, standing in front of alongside our union family. It's great to be here. I support this motion. This is the motion we need. Because we live in a Commonwealth nation, a Commonwealth where the wealth of this nation ought to be shared by its common people, people like us, working people, rank and file like you and I. When I hear another attack like ESSO, like CUV, on our wages, on our conditions, our penalty rates for God's sake, our right to take industrial action in defence of our claims, our permanent employment in favour of casualisation. When I hear a federal government generously supporting the greed of big business, I know the rules are broken. They might be able to get away with it in South Australia, they might be able to get away with it in Western Australia, they might be able to get away with it in Queensland. This is Victoria, this is the heartland of unionism. The heartland. We won! We had our ages down the road. This is hallowed ground, you tread fucking lightly. So when we hear the call from Troy, when we hear the call from Sally to, to walk, we march. Because their song, their song is our belief, their words are our creed, and this campaign is one we will fucking win.
Just, uh, just name and who you're going to get thanks. Sure. Lucy Monan, I'm a state councillor of the Australian Education Union uh, and the Rev at St Albans Secondary College. Um, I want to support the motion wholeheartedly. Um, I was one of the people handing out the pink motions and I respect what the comrades are saying about not moving amendments because I think it will get messy and we don't have time. But I do want to speak about the centrality of the right to strike and the importance of that in our Change the Rules campaign as a really, really important central, com um, central demand. Um, I was brought nearly to tears when the, when the comrade from ESSO was talking um, and when others have talked about their struggle and fighting for too long uh, for, for their wages and conditions. And I think part of the problem that we've got and part of the reason that our rules are so broken is because our right to strike and our confidence to seize that right to strike has diminished over a really long period of time. Last year, uh, the construction unions came out twice um, on work days for rallies um, to fight against the war on workers. And they were talking about the ABCC, um, but they were also talking about penalty rates um, for, for the rest of us. And it really stuck in the bottom of the pit of my stomach when one, somebody from the, from the leadership of the construction union said, yes, we will fight and we will cop whatever the Liberal government throws at us, whatever Fair Work throws at us, whatever you know the, the media throws at us, we will stand strong and we will keep fighting. But where is everybody else? Where are our comrades? And I felt really, really upset that day that we hadn't come out in solidarity. I want to come out on May the 9th with the rest of my union taking a day of stop work action, taking a day of strike action. Yes, so that was the first motion. It was carried. Uh, we're down at the delegates meeting that was held on Tuesday at the Melbourne Town Hall. It was absolutely packed. And uh, it uh, then moved on to the second motion. Uh, I apologise. I meant to uh, warn people that there's a, a few swear words, not, not many. But uh, if you're faint-hearted, then um, you, one's already escaped through. Sorry, I'll. Um, I mean, it's, I'm just a bit tired. I'm sorry. I should have uh, warned you. But uh, this is the uh, second uh, motion, and uh, John Sitka spoke to it. It's up on the screen. Victorian Union delegates endorsed the rally on May 9th and call on all Victorian workers to take to the streets as the first collective action in changing the rules. That's been moved by Susie Allison of NUW and seconded by John Setka, CFMU. <laughs> we know who we're here for. May the 9th is a very important day. I mean, us as a union, the CFMU and the construction unions, have been demonised, called thugs. We've been called all sorts of names. Uh, we've had some shocking photos of us in the papers, where even my mum isn't recognised, we called Storm Boy, the Pelican Brief, all the rest of it. <laughs> and you know what? We still keep going. Because, you know, I, I, watched the, I watched the movie once, and it was a reporter that broke that Iran-Contra scandal, whatever it was, in America. And uh, they found him dead later on. He uh, committed suicide, shot himself in the head 12 times. But um, <laughs> one of the uh, reporters that sort of... Uh, gave him a warning and said, listen, the closer you get to your target, the heavier the flap. And that's what's happening at the moment. Mm. I mean, under the leadership of Sally, they have tried to bring her down, they've tried to mow her down, and they just can't. I mean, once in that blue moon...
those sorts of things, and she is still firm. And it happens once in a blue moon, union leaders like this come forward. And, and I mean, we are a collective, but everyone wants to be led. Myself included, we all want to be led. I mean, we belong to something that's very, very important. I mean, you know, you go to parties and you, you go to barbecues and you got people there sort of saying, oh, you know, fucking unions, this and that, and all the rest of it and that. Well, like I've said before, you've got to remind these people. You know, you've got to ask them, do you get holiday pay? Do you, you know, do you get all sick leave? Do you get all these, these all, you know, things that super and all that, things that take for granted. I mean, that was one by the trade union movement. Problem is, we we're always bad at selling our message. We just took it for granted because we knew all about it, that everyone knew about it. So a lot of them things that everyday workers enjoy today was won by us, people like us, people before us. And a lot of people made a lot of sacrifices to get where we are. People lost houses. People went on strike for weeks on end. I mean, look at this though. I mean, Troy. Who wasn't moved by Troy? I mean, this country was built on a fair go for everyone. That's what, that's what Australia was all about. I'm all proud of it. You know, that larrikin sort of thing and who gives a shit, you know? Let's have a bit of a crack, help your, help your friends out. Oh, that's all illegal these days. You can't do that now. They've made it all illegal. See, what they've actually done is they've made it illegal for us to be unionists. Everything that we do, they're trying to criminalise it. So they always accuse us, oh, you're breaking the law. Well, when there's shit laws around, what are we supposed to do? It's almost like saying, excuse me, we'd like you to play this game. You're never going to win because we've loaded all the bases, but can you still play? And we say, well, I'm not going to play by the rules. I say, well, you know what, we're going to put you in jail for that. You can't fucking do that because we actually want you to lose. What's wrong with losing? Why are you upset about losing? Jesus, take a wild guess. And that's what they are trying to do. I mean, that's what they are trying to do to us. I mean, this country is not the sort of country at the moment that it is that I want my kids to grow up in. And leave it to you. I mean, it is terrible. I mean, you know, all our rights have been stripped away. I mean, we're fighting the system. You know, last week was a bad week for us as the CFU Victoria branch. Cost us $1.4 million. I mean, I'd rather hand $1.4 million over to the SO workers. That's where that money should be going. That's where the rest of it's going. You know, there's an old saying, a bit of a cliche, you know, why should the next generation inherit worse conditions than us? Well, unless we do something about it, they will. They already have. So it's up to us. I mean, the excuse to stop now and the fight starts. I mean, we've got a leader there and ready to lead us. I mean, all we've got to do, we've got to do our bit. And I mean, don't be ashamed of it. We're unionists. Don't be ashamed of anything. I mean, people will bag us. They'll say, you know, they say, if you, like the RTVU in, uh, in New South Wales. Look at the rules. They've decided to follow the rules. They ticked all the boxes. They've done everything under the law that was required. When they got to the Fair Work, well, unfair work commission, right? The uh, commissioner there, who was an ex-predecessor to the ABCC, talk about Liberal Party, I can have a statue of him. He was there surprised and said, you know what? No, you're not going on strike. Do you know why? Because it was going to inconvenience people. <laughs> well, I mean, Jesus, imagine taking industrial action wasn't going to inconvenience anyone. You could be taking it for the next 15 years and I would have noticed. So, I mean, and they think we're stupid. I mean, you know, look, look, I'll tell you, I'm a Richmond supporter, right? And, and I don't want to talk about that. Talk about it. I'm very fine about it. Um, at our grand final breakfast, 
I remember there was a panel up there. There was a, uh, Gibson from Hawthorne, uh, Swanee, and, uh, and a Melbourne player. And they asked them all, Neil Roberts, I like, asked them all, who do you think is going to win the grand final today? And all of them, except for Swanee, picked Adelaide. And they asked Swanee, well, why have you picked Richmond? He goes, because at the moment, they've got the momentum, and you can't stop momentum. And that's what we've got at the moment. We have got the momentum. We've just got to see it all the way through. See, because on the 9th, see, people say to us, oh, it's all right for you, you can pull all your people out and go to a rally. You know what? When we go to a rally, when we pull all our people out and we all go to a rally, if they go back to work, they have to work the next four hours for nothing. That's the law. Plus, they can be prosecuted. But they still go. I'm going to do a whole day's pay, proudly. That's what everyone should be prepared to do. I mean, we've got to fight. It's not easy for us. I'm sick of people saying, oh, it's easy for you. I mean, gee, the man of fines we pay, we will be shitting gold bricks soon, let me tell you. But I mean, um, but that's how the laws are stacked against us. We've got the ABCC up our ass. I mean, we've got all sorts of things. And let me tell you, the sort of Australia we live in at the moment, and that's why it's important that everyone comes out in the street. We had a member, Bob Heffington, that died, got killed on the site in Carlton not that long ago. He died in the arms of the uh, official. We were at an organised meeting when he got the call. Theo, he died in his arms, and the shop steward fell. That member died in their arms before his workmates around him. And it was terrible. It was one of my good union person. Uh, and the only good thing was he died surrounded by friends who cared for him. You can imagine the trauma that created. You know, people wondering, what do we do with his car keys? Who do we ring? What if his phone rings? I mean, what's going on now? You don't want to be in that situation. So we organise councils on site, you know, what you do, and, and, and it's just an absolutely traumatic experience. The ABCC rolled up the next day, went into the site office, and, uh, and they wanted to know, did the, did the CFM give 24 hours notice? And have they been playing up? And the project manager, to his credit, said, no, you know what, they haven't done any of that. And if it wasn't for them, we'd be in big trouble here because they've organised campus, they're here, making sure that everything's all right, that everyone's looked after. Not once did they ask. Not once did they ask how, you know, what happened, how terrible it is, and uh, how's the rest of the site, how are they coping? They didn't care. They're the sort of people we're dealing with. This is not in terms of Australia. I mean, you hear the stories from Troy. I mean, 300 days on the pickle line. You can imagine the toll that it takes. I mean, I've got kids too. I mean, it is just incredible. I mean, people do all sorts of things. Marriages break up. This is the Australia we live in at the moment. So you know what? When it comes to May the 9th, please, don't be scared. I mean, we should be proud. We want to make Australia... I mean, the only thing I agree with what Trump says when he says make, make America great, he's doing a fantastic job of that. But I mean, we should make this country great again. Because you know what, if we don't, no one else will. There's no whole group of people somewhere just waiting and they're gonna fix it all up for us. It's on us. We're the ones that are gonna fix it, no one else. There's no secret army sitting somewhere and they're gonna come out and ride in and, and, and save the day. It is us. You look at each other, we're the only ones that can do it. And we have to do it. That's why May the 9th, we shouldn't hear excuses. So that was John Setker at the, at the uh, delegates, mass delegates rally on Tuesday, the 17th of April. And the, uh, the uh, 
event he's talking about is the uh, big rally on May the 9th. Uh, there's a couple of things going on before May the 9th. Uh, there's the uh, International Memorial Workers' Memorial Day outside Victorian Trades Hall. There's a memorial for fallen workers. Uh, it's uh, the 27th of April. I believe it starts at 10.30. That's an annual event and there's some um, been some shocking deaths quite recently, like the two young blokes who were killed in a trench in Ballarat, which was only, say, about a week and a half ago. Horrifying stuff. Um, it's uh, There's also, of course, May Day's coming up. The May Day, official May Day celebrations are going to be on May the 6th. That's a Sunday. That's at Trades Hall as well. Outside in the street, there's going to be... Uh, it's a family-friendly day. There's going to be uh, activities for the kids, so like jumping castles, etc., etc. There's going to be music. There's going to be uh, a great shebang, and I believe that starts at 11. And uh, there's also going to be uh, less um, uh, formal... Uh, celebrations of May Day on May the 1st. Uh, I believe there's going to be uh, something down at um, outside the uh, State Library on that day at about 5 o'clock. Uh, there will probably be other celebrations of that sort. If people want to send the information in, we'll, we will put it forward to the listeners. Uh, today on Solidarity Breakfast, we... Uh, had a, a discussion about uh, the robots, are they coming for your job? Uh, there's some dis- disagreement about uh, that uh, particular conversation because uh, so a listener uh, rang in sort of a bit disgruntled. Uh, American accents, it's very interesting. I've played a couple of uh, pieces from left-leaning people from America and there's been some really quite negative responses to the accent. Uh, is this a kind of, uh, you know, America's a big place. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, various uh, views. But anyway, uh, I'll take it on board. Uh, we've, uh, we listened to a interview with uh, Kate McIntyre-Clear about her film Kangaroo, and I really uh, urge you to have a look around to see that film Kangaroo. Uh, we had Kevin live, and then we went to the delegates meeting and we listened to some delegates and uh, John Setka. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with Maya Dyson. Maya Dyson's got a new CD out, so you might want to look around for it. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.